for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Melissa Butler, the CEO and founder of The Lip Bar. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. Melissa, I'm wondering if you could take me back a little bit. I know that you started this brand in 2012 when you were an analyst at Barclays. And I'm wondering, you know, how did you translate a career in finance to being a beauty founder? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I never imagined being a beauty founder. It wasn't it wasn't my goal by any means. I started my career in finance and I actually thought that that I wanted to do that. And then probably let's say I don't know, a year into it, I was like, "Wait, what am I doing here? Why am I doing here?" And I and I realized very quickly how important self-esteem was and how important the beauty industry was to self-esteem. So just working on Wall Street, I very quickly learned that, you know, as a woman, unfortunately, we are judged not just by our, our work and our, and our work ethic, we're also judged by our looks. And so I oftentimes was having to show up for myself in a multitude of ways, thinking about what my hair looked like, what my makeup looked like, um, and also ultimately thinking about what my core work performance was and and thinking about how I showed up and what beauty meant to me, I became incredibly frustrated, frustrated with the beauty industry, its lack of diversity, not seeing people who looked like me um, and really just this idea that beauty was linear. And I was like, wait. No, beauty beauty doesn't look like one thing. It looks like all things, and I'm included within that, um, even though I felt like I wasn't represented. And that's honestly what drove me to starting the company. It wasn't because I was passionate about makeup or because I was a makeup artist. No, it was literally because I wanted to see a change within the industry, and I knew that everyday women like me deserve to see themselves within the industry. What do you mean exactly by linear? Do you mean like that aspirational point of view or the one look? Yeah. In, in 2011, and this is when I was, you know, when I first started working on the company, but in 2011, I very vividly remember the beauty industry and, and the media um, essentially putting like the Kim K look on a pedestal. And that Kim K look was supposed to be aspirational for every single woman in the United States. Meanwhile, only probably 2% of the women in the country look like her. And it's like, well, if she is the standard of beauty, then how am I to, to be made to feel? And that's something that I was questioning. I was questioning it for myself, for my friends, for my family, and just like everyday women. And I was like, wait, why? Why is it that we are all chasing something that's so outside of ourselves? And, and that frustration honestly led me to um, making lipstick in my kitchen. So I, I've always had the philosophy and the mentality that, you know, you shouldn't just complain about something. You can complain and, and either get over it or you can complain and do something about it. And I am an action-oriented person. So I was like, instead of complaining that, that beauty consistently shows up in one form across the beauty industry, across the media, I'm going to create a company that showcases is beauty in all sorts of lights. So it, it was so ridiculous, Priya, because our very first collection, we didn't even have a single red or nude lipstick. We only had really bold colors, like 
purple and blue and, and yellow and orange, really just to say, I'm making a statement that beauty is a matter of self-expression. And so however you want to show up as yourself is how you should be able to do so. And at the time, you know, in 2011, you couldn't really find like a blue lipstick or a purple lipstick in mainstream. And so I was going against the grain just to further prove that beauty didn't look like one thing. It was in all things and all people. That's interesting that you say, um, how much we were so focused on Kim Kardashian and that look in 2011, because I would argue that's even more the case today. So I'm wondering when you were thinking about this brand and like how it existed and manifested, you know, obviously you made this brand in your kitchen, you did it on your own, and then you brought it to market in a digitally savvy way, which nobody really was doing back then either. So what was that about? You know, when you were thinking about launching this brand, did you think it made sense in national retailer? Or did you think it made sense just in a digital manifestation? Well, I mean, to to be honest, when I started the company, I didn't have the resources to even think about launching in a in a national retailer. I didn't have the resources to to even find a manufacturer at that point. And so the thing about um, small business owners who are truly looking to solve a problem, you get super scrappy and you don't care about the way business is supposed to work or the way business is supposed to be run. I wasn't thinking about the the long-term vision from a business perspective. I was thinking about the long-term vision from a people and from a humanity standpoint. And when you're approaching business with a sense of humanity, you know, it, oftentimes you're not necessarily thinking about, you know, how it shows up in three years. And even our name, The Lip Bar, I was thinking of that moment that right now, you know, how do I show up for for the bulk of, of everyday women and how do I make sure that they find themselves represented? So, you know, we launched digitally because that's what was easiest to do, even though, you know, most heritage brands were still focused on, on their retail channels. I was like, I want to reach everyday people and I want to control it. And I felt like digital and social media was the best way to do that. And so that's honestly how we grew because that's all we had. And I'm so happy that that I was willing to keep going even in spite of, you know, not necessarily following the traditional business rules. Today, I would argue that digital is all people are thinking about. You know, if you think about when you think about the D2C brands that have kind of like popped up and whether they're the Harry's or the ones that are launching today, it's like digital first, customer centric. But you had been doing that for years before Harry's popped up or any of these other brands like Casper or Away. So I'm wondering like how now you're kind of doing the opposite of what they're doing, right? Like, you know, you're thinking about stores and retail as everybody's kind of rejiggering their digital sites in COVID. Tell me what that's been like. More than anything, I'm just thinking about accessibility. So the lip bar is all about showing up for that everyday woman. So when we think about problem solving, we're like, the everyday woman doesn't have the time to watch a 30-minute YouTube video to figure out how to get the look and then buy the brand that they saw on the latest influencer. You know, that that doesn't work for, for women who are in my age bracket, women who are I'll call it 25 to 40 years old who who know exactly who they are, who know what their their beauty preferences are. They don't necessarily go in that same vein as like the younger generation does. 
So in thinking about how do I show up for that everyday woman by making her makeup a little bit easier, by streamlining her routine, by making sure that these products are not only going to be um, high quality, but also affordable. When I think about that, it's like we are shopping oftentimes out of convenience. And I know that we're going to Target to buy a lot of our personal care products. Sometimes we're, sh we're shopping there for groceries, for housewares. We're looking for those avenues where it can be a one-stop shop. And so my entire mission is to make makeup easier. And so I don't want it to be um, a situation where you have to wait, you know, four business days to get your order from offline. I want you to be able to order offline, but also go into a Target, go into the Walmart because you, you just need to re-up on the things that you absolutely know work for you. So we're creating basic beauty for everyday life. And I think that in order to truly show up and, and fulfill our value prop in terms of it being easy, it has to be accessible. When you think about that accessibility, you know, I think it's interesting because you said at the top of this conversation how you were kind of scrappy and you were just doing it. You were going for it, maybe even winging it. And so when did you feel like you were ready, you know, to go into Target, to go into Walmart? Because those are such huge partners. Yeah, they're huge partners. And, and we are still a digital first business. So, you know, that is our heritage. It'll always be our heritage. It's where we can have the greatest relationship with our customers and have that dialogue. But we also understand, again, the power of that access. And so when I thought about expanding beyond our, our digital channel, you know, number one, I was like, where are our customers shopping? And so we were very strategic about picking Target as our first retail partner. Um, and, and we decided that it was time simply because our customers were asking. As a digitally native company, we are always looking at our data. We're always surveying our customers. We're, we're doing everything from a simple poll on Instagram to like doing traditional surveys via email to, you know, every year we also even call our customers. We call about a hundred customers every year to just check on, you know, their experience. Have they liked the products? What surprised them? Why did they buy it? Like having those, you know, five, 10 minute conversations with our customers, they oftentimes allow us to make the best possible decision when we're thinking about everything from product development to even expansion in the form of a retail partner. So we went to Target because our customers told us it was time. We, we helped pick the stores, um, we helped pick the assortment, and we also understood that our customers were shopping at Target. So Melissa, tell me a little bit about who that customer is and you know how that led you to launching in Target. So at the time, the the bulk of our customers were black women and a very specific subset of black women. Black women who were wearing their hair naturally. So the natural hair movement was taking a huge leap. It was literally the fastest growing um, category within hair care. And what we found was that most of our customers were actually shopping for their hair care items at Target, but they weren't shopping for makeup there. So Target had something in terms of um, what they would consider ethnic hair care, but I didn't feel as though they had makeup that, that 
expand that was expansive enough. They didn't have makeup or nudes to to be more specific for women who were um, of melanin complexions. So black and black black and brown women, by and large, were going to Target for everything but makeup. And what I also found is that black and brown women were oftentimes shopping premium beauty. And I was like, whoa, this is a huge challenge. So why is it that black and brown women don't have the ability to shop for affordable beauty products in mass? And so that's exactly how we made the decision in terms of launching in, in Target. We were like, okay, we're going to reach out to Target. I literally emailed them. It was a blind email via LinkedIn. And I basically told them like, hey, my customers are shopping there for hair care, but they're not shopping there for makeup because you don't have anything that speaks to them. At the time, our customers were shopping for beauty at stores like MAC. MAC was huge within the multicultural population because MAC had a very expansive um, assortment as it related to nudes and reds that really worked for women who had black and brown skin. And so basically that was the very candid conversation that I had with Target and they were like, you're right. Let's let's test you. Like we actually haven't really done any small indie brands within Color Cosmetics, but we'll test you online. And so we launched target.com. We did incredibly well, and then 6 months later, we were launching in Target stores. What would you say about the landscape today? Because you know, that's so interesting that you're saying this because that the connection, the connectivity between hair and makeup and prestige and mask, because I don't think people are thinking about it that way. Um, or they weren't, certainly not back then. But now we're seeing a lot more melanin-rich brands kind of popping up, whether it's in skincare or makeup. And, you know, I'm all for it because, as you said, brown and brown, black women have kind of been overlooked in this area. But do you still feel like that's adding to the greater pie or do you think it's competitive with what, what you're doing or how do you think that they all kind of sit together? Because you have one side of the audience saying like 50 shades, we've got you covered, but then 50 shades are not on the shelf. Yeah. Um, so I do think that the industry is at this point of clamoring. I think everyone is trying to get in and, and find their growth within that multicultural population. People are, are certainly looking at the BIPOC group for their growth within beauty in, in all sorts of personal care. Um, but I do think that there's still room because the reality is the heritage brands are still the big fish. So as many of the small incumbents that have launched in the last, let's say, five years, we're still a very small part of the pie in comparison to, you know, the Maybellines and the L'Oreal's and the Revlons of the world. And I think that over time, we're going to find that the customers are, are going to decide with their dollar and these small brands will then become the big brands or ultimately get acquired by the big brands because we are we are where the growth is coming from. So it, it's it's an interesting place to be in right now, but I think it's up to the consumers and the consumers are smartening up. The consumers are saying, I actually want to buy from a brand that I truly believe in, that I understand their authenticity. I don't want you to, to just slap a brown label on this, on this packaging and say, hey, this is for black and brown women. And so I think that heritage brands are at this place of, of really understanding that they have to drive authenticity. And, and that's difficult when you don't actually have a story to tell. 
Absolutely. That's a great segue, Melissa, because I know last time I read that, you know, you guys had hit about 7 million in revenue or sales in 2018. But I've also heard that you've doubled your business year over year the last three years. So what can you tell us about your sales and growth that may you may that you might want to share today. Um, well, I'm just I'm just incredibly proud of of the team and the company that we've been able to build. Um, you're right in that we have doubled our business every single year for the last four years. Um, and we've done it in a very scrappy way. We've only raised funding one time. We raised in 2018 um, around two million dollars. Um, and, and we did that to really support the expansion of the business. So at one point, we only sold lip products. And today we have, you know, lip colors. We have our fast face kit. We have tinted moisturizer, which is quickly becoming our number one seller within the company. So that's that's super exciting. Um, but I, I think that we've just been able to grow by, by being true to who we are and telling the story of our customers. So we are not here to tell a story of transformation. Instead, we're here to say, you don't have to transform in order to be beautiful. You are already beautiful. And if you want to have these high quality cosmetics at an affordable price, we're here to serve you. Tell me a little bit about the complexion piece, because, you know, again, like we said at the top of this conversation, the lip bar, you thought it was just really going to be about lip in 2011, 12. Obviously, complexion is a huge growth opportunity. And one thing I notice on your site, especially, is the way that you're talking about those shades. You know, you're talking about, you know, ivory, honey, cinnamon, mocha, caramel, like you're talking about it in a way that I think brown and black women, myself included, understand what they're looking for. Will you talk about that strategy and how you're communicating? Because that's something that I think is very much lost with other brands trying to do this, who are expanding into the range. Yeah, it's a, it's a really new thing that that we're doing and, and we're consistently evolving our strategy. But because I did not start this business with the understanding of a makeup artist, I, I've always had this approach of how do I make makeup more relatable? How do I make makeup more palatable for that everyday woman? And so in thinking about how I would describe myself and my complexion or how my friends would describe their complexion, I wanted to pull out these adjectives that allowed us to group ourselves by complexion so that we could then make complexion-based recommendations. So it's like once you're in, um, we've identified your complexion as being in the honey family, we then make other um, complexion-based recommendations. We're like, okay, we know your complexion so well that this is your perfect nude, this is your perfect red, this is your perfect pink, this is your perfect face powder, and this is your perfect everything fill in the blank that we sell. And that's that's been our approach because I think Oftentimes, women get to beauty counters and they're like, okay, well, will this work on me? How does this look on me? And so our goal is to take that, that guesswork out of your beauty routine and streamline it by grouping your complexion. Would you say that grouping or that you know actual communication with the customer is helping drive the, the transition from, say, just lip to full face? Because I noticed like on your site, it's definitely grouped that way. And I'm wondering if women are buying kits 
in that family. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, for six, the first six years of the business, six and a half years, we only sold lip colors. And then we had a very aggressive expansion outside of lip. We launched our fast face kit, which is like six products, seven minutes, your whole face. I know that's now a long time considering COVID because people are now like, what's my 30 second face or just what's my like everyday lip gloss. But at the time in 2019, when we launched that, that collection, it was revolutionary and people really appreciated not needing to figure out what worked for them. And so by grouping them in the complexion family, it allows them to say, oh, okay, well, now that I want to buy tinted moisturizer, I know exactly what shade works for me because you all said that these are the ones that work for my, my complexion and my skin tone. And it's been really successful for us. Like, Lip used to be 100% of the business, and now it's only 47% of the business. Yeah. You're seeing my eyes get much wider. And that's just on two years' time, correct? Yeah. And even within the first year of launching outside of Lip, we very quickly, people, again, we, we used the data to understand what our customers wanted from us. So we knew that they had been wanting more than, than Lip from us, but we didn't just want to expand into any product. We didn't want to just say, oh, we're launching 50 shades of foundation like everyone else. Like we're here to solve problems. And I think that any any lasting entrepreneur, no matter your industry, that's how you have to think. You have to stay customer-centric in order to grow. Would you say that even in retail, where it's difficult to maybe now try full-face makeup, it's resounding with customers, like in your Target and your Walmart launch, that the complexion is really growing and, and sticky there? Yeah, absolutely. Like if I th think about, um, you know, our tinted moisturizer, which we just launched two months ago, it's our number one seller across all of our retailers and on our .com. And, and it just launched. And so obviously we have a lot of marketing um, materials to support it right now. But beyond just the marketing, what we're finding is that our customers really enjoy it. We're getting repeat purchases of that complexion product in the middle of a pandemic where people aren't wearing products every day. So people are repurchasing the tinted moisturizer. It has incredible ratings and reviews and, and we're really using it as our North Star as it relates to how we want to see all of our complexion products launch and, and the success of it. A second ago, you talked about the funding piece of the business and it was the $2 million to help fuel this product expansion. A lot of other businesses are raising hand over fist every year, you know, every two years. And it seems like you've been really able to do a lot, you know, on that money, on that kind of, you know, fundraising raise. And I'm wondering, like, how you've been able to be so maybe lean and strategic about it? Because I'm sure now, especially after the last year, you've had so much more in incoming requests to be a part of your brand and investment and, and offers. I mean, when we originally raised that $2 million, I told myself that I don't want to be in a perpetual state of fundraising. Um, fundraising is taxing. You know, my, my job and how I am best used right now is leading my team. And I understand that, you know, the second I go out on the market and fundraise, that's time that's taken away 
from from me leading my team and driving the business in the direction that it needs to. I also value ownership. And so if I am in a perpetual state of fundraising, that means that number one, I'm burning cash flow. And that's not true for us. So we were, we're profitable. And so that's something that we're incredibly proud of, but it's like, I did not go that route of burning through the cash and buying my customers. I was very conservative because I wanted to make sure that we actually had the proper strategy to grow. I also wanted to make sure that I am properly incentivized to make sure that I am growing this business year over year. When a founder is um, so diluted, they don't really have a reason to, to keep going. They don't have a reason to do the right things for their business. And so I wanted to just grow the company um, a little bit more conservatively. Now, we are going to fundraise this year, um, and I'm still only going to raise, you know, what I think that that we need. Because again, I don't want to be one of those founders who who looks up and only owns a very small percentage of their company. When you think about fundraising as you go into this year, you know, what is it to drive or what is it that you're hoping to fuel? Yeah, well, now we have the right assortment, right? So we originally raised to expand the assortment. Now we have the right assortment and now it's time to put the pedal to the metal on marketing. So now it's a matter of hiring the right people and making sure that we make the right marketing investments to attract customers, to retain our customers. Um, and, and to really just have fun. You know, I think over the last two years, we've been so um, serious about our expansion beyond lip. And now we've done it. We've expanded. We have products that customers love. Now it's time to have a little bit of fun with it. It's time to have some events. It's time to, to finish rounding out that brand equity that, that people know and love. So when you think about marketing, it's not necessarily performance marketing. It's the experiential piece of it. I think it's a little bit of everything. So performance marketing is, of course, it's incredibly important to us, but it's not the only form of marketing. And the reality is I think people are ready to get off of their phones. They're ready to live life and go outside. And so, you know, I want to be able to show up for them when they're going outside. I want to be able to provide experiences for them to get excited about. So like no one's excited about scrolling their phone through Instagram and seeing a, a, another beauty ad. They're, we're inundated with content all day. And so of course we're still going to invest in performance marketing. Um, we'll probably play a little bit with influencers, but I'm really excited to have some, some real life experiences. A lot of the brands out there right now are really struggling when you when they think about makeup specifically because of the downturn of color cosmetics. And, you know, I've heard certain brands really have not experienced that, whether because of their clean proposition, because of their vegan proposition, or because of their multicultural proposition. Has that been the case for you? Yeah, I mean, we were we were able to grow 90% last year. And so, you know, at the top of COVID, we were so nervous. Like, what are we going to do? Like, people are wearing masks. Like, you know, how do we react in a in an industry that is really built for when you're going outside? And now we're all locked in our houses. So, we were like, okay, you know, it's time to buckle down. It's time to to really focus on the humanity of the brand and just Tell the truth. And so that was our approach in COVID. You know, you know, we know that you're at home and you're not feeling your best. 
you know, apply a little lip color to give you a sense of normalcy. Like we just ha started having real life conversations with our customers and we were able to, to grow 90% within the pandemic. Um, and I think it's it's all about our authenticity. We've never spent a ton on marketing. We've never had a huge marketing budget. And the reason we've been able to grow is because of our VN value prop, because of our ease of use value prop, and because ultimately they know that when we're talking to them, we're speaking with truth and honesty. Do you think that really speaks to this customer, especially that we have been left, and I'm including myself in this, that we have been so overlooked or so, you know, sidestepped in, in beauty overall? Yeah. I mean, I think the reality is the customer um, has been so used to not getting the attention that she deserves. So a little bit of attention, a little bit of authenticity makes her turn her, her head. You know, I think it's actually easy for smaller indie brands to to take um, market share from those heritage brands that, again, don't have a story. So when you look at the Fenty beauties of the world, you know, Fenty was able to launch off of the the premise of like everyone is included and everyone felt seen. And we saw, you know, the records that Fenty Beauty were, was able to break with, you know, of course, the right team and the right marketing budget and Rihanna, of course. But but people were ready for something different. And I think that, you know, now we expect it. So at first it was a surprise. And now people are like, oh, wait, who owns that? What do you believe as a company? Oh, that's women founded? Oh, it's women owned? Oh, it's black owned? Or, you know, it, it's that energy that's really allowing small businesses to grow. Like people, people get really excited when I tell them that the Lip Bars team is 100% women. We've always been 100% women. And it's the thing that we're most proud about because ultimately the, the larger companies are, you know, run by people who aren't typically end users of the product. And so how can you possibly truly show up in a way that speaks to your customers if you are not your customer? Last question for you, Melissa. You know, you mentioned a second ago about ownership and why you maybe haven't taken Fundy um, in the rapid way that other brands have. I'm wondering about acquisition. Like, is that at all on your radar? Because we are seeing more and more conglomerates look to this customer and we are seeing they're desperate to kind of satisfy that customer. Is that been at all on your mind? And would you go down that route? Yeah, I mean, I, I have no desire to be a forever founder. I am not naive in that there's gonna come a point in time where I am no longer the, the best person to lead this organization. And I actually look forward to that. I look forward to having someone who can take it to the next level. And I think with that mindset, you have to be open to acquisition. And I'm absolutely open to it. I just wanna make sure that, you know, it's with the right person. It's with the right partner who wants to keep this customer at the top of mind. Thank you so much, Melissa. It was great having you. And thank you for listening. Tune in for more with Melissa next week at our Glossy event live on May 4th. There, Melissa Butler will be speaking, as well as Addison Ray from Item Beauty and Keisha Steelman from Ulta Beauty, and so many other great speakers. Sign up at glossy.co slash events. <laughs>